bankers terrified of competition with post offices, and D-Day for City of London speculators on the edge. Coming up on this week's Citizens Report. Welcome to the Citizens Report. It's the 14th of October 2022. I'm Robert Barwick and I'm joined today by Citizens Party founder and leader Craig Isherwood. Welcome, Craig. Yeah, thanks, Robbie. And Craig, uh, today, or not today, this month, October 2022, is the 30th anniversary of you having the harebrained idea <laughs> to move to Melbourne and set up a national office of the Citizens Party. Yeah, well, Robbie, um, you're the one who remembered that. I actually didn't <laughs> because I always think about it in terms of when we started back in 1988. So. It's actually 34 years since then, but it was a momentous move in 1992. I remember it as as you would very clearly. You know, packing up a car, a boat, another car, a truck, and a trailer. (laughs) The boat didn't last long. No, it didn't last long. It should have kept. Should have moved the Maribyrn on. (laughs) (laughs) Should have kept it though. But that was a mistake. It was a good boat, sailboat. Well, in that it's it's been an action-packed 30 years. Uh, January is my anniversary of being. I came a few months later in January, so it'll be 30 years for me then. Um, yeah. But um, time flies. Time flies, but it gives us a, it gives us a perspective on Australian a thirty year perspective on Australian politics, which is uh, invaluable. Yep. Anyway, instead of indulging in our own uh, anniversary, take, just take a smidgen of time, Robbie. Smidgen of time. Let's uh, let's get into the show. Um, what we're going to discuss today is the is the p- pathetic excuse that the banks have put up, Craig, about the postal bank, and it amounts to pulling their thumb out of their mouth and saying, wang, 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 we don't want to have to compete with a postal bank, with a government bank. The big tough banks don't want to have to compete. It's all about them. Um, and we're going to talk about a fascinating contrast between the absolute chaos happening right now in the City of London financial system and how it's being overtaken by another place as the world's biggest banker for good reason. Um, but we'll get to that um, in the second part of the show. Remember... Um, what you do to, to um, comment on the show is very important. Please like the show, share it as widely as you can, um, subscribe if you're not already a subscriber and click that bell icon um, to make sure you get notified of comments of, of new episodes and comment. The commenting is very, very important. Get the conversation going um, below. Um, in speaking of new episodes, before we begin, the last thing people can see before this show on um, Citizens, the, our, our channel, Citizens Report channel, is my Citizens Insight interview with David McBride. It's the longest interview I've ever done. We did it last Friday morning, um, sitting at this desk, uh, over two hours. But David wanted to tell his story, and he does tell his story uh, in depth. If you haven't watched it, put aside the time to watch it. I know it's two hours. It, it, there's no graphics, so listen to it in the car or whatever. It's worth hearing. This is a man who is willingly and I have to emphasise that willingly, about to go through a secret trial in which he could face a 50-year prison sentence. He could have cut a deal and got out of that. He won't do that. He wants this trial. And so your fellow Australian is about to suffer, suffer a massive travesty of justice. You need to know how he thinks, why he's doing it, and what led up to that. And that's what the interview is all about, right? We got to... Um, no, no, Craig. Uh, Craig, we got to know David through 
the network supporting Julian Assange. David McBride's a big supporter of Julian Assange. Um, so that's the other thing that happened in this last week. The, uh, last week, Elisa and I recorded the, the show a day earlier than usual on the Thursday. And on the Thursday night, you and I and Richard Varden, of course, went to the, um, uh, the event, which was f- for David McBride's film, Declassified, but Julian Assange's father was there. And that was one of the events we participated in last week. And we'll, play a f- we'll have some of the clips. Um, you can see some of the events. That, the, the big one was a Saturday event in Melbourne where um, a lot of people were on the, came to the Princess Bridge on St Kilda Road over the Yarra River there to uh, demonstrate for Julian Assange. So you, you'll, you'll see some of that footage. Might even pause here and, and, and um, play a clip on that. Um, but Craig, you're, you got to participate in that in that evening with uh, David McBride and the Q and A afterwards, which was really important. Just what, what were your impressions? Well, what was interesting, Robbie, is that these, these guys are fighting with the same principles that we have been for the last thirty years. I mean, the yep. fact is that these guys are, are standing up. You know, Julian Assange's father, John, is standing up and very passionate. He doesn't have to do this, of course. It's, he's his son, but uh, the the degree of honesty. But also the absolute crap of the system. You know, yep. the, 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 the way that Julian Assange is treated uh, like a terrorist and the... It's infuriating. It's infuriating. And people, you start to think, well, what can you do about this? Well, that's what we stand for as a political party and have. We, we stand for this question of economic justice but also the principle of justice full stop, which means that there's, there's no sort of hiding from uh, making sure that you know, certain interested parties are, uh, are allowed to cover up things. And, Robbie, this brings me just to an int- introductory comment to, in our Australian Alert Service this week, um, you know, which people should call in and get a copy of. This is a very important article, International Calls to Stop Kiev's Killer List Makers. Now, this is part of a global process right now of establishing what's called infoterrorism, which means that anyone that speaks out about anything to do with uh, the war in Ukraine or trying to stop wars in general could be labelled an info-terrorist and then be put on, be charged with appropriate charges to that sort of a, like a terrorist charge in order to shut them down. And in the case of Kiev, the the Ukrainians have have compiled this list of people that they're saying... 600,000. They're justified in killing them. Yes. Because they take a contrary view on the Ukraine conflict. What stuns me, Robbie, is that our government completely supports the Kiev government, but this government is create, creating murder lists. It, it's within, you know, yep. publicly available murder list to go out and kill people just like the Nazis did. Yep. 
And this is what I mean. Look, we, you talk about this and people say, what, what's going on here? Why, why, why haven't I heard about this? Right? And that's the problem. Is the, mil the media is so filtered in this country. I am so sick of the ABC. It's got an actual program of making sure that all this disinformation is peddled without checking. And then news radio has the hide to go on and say, oh, we check everything. We're the most trusted news service. We check everything that we put out and so on and so forth. But check, check who, with who? Yeah, with, right? that's right, with who? <laughs> with who? With the CIA. <laughs> yeah, because what they're putting out, we know, can be proved you know, from our sources, yeah, yeah. Uh, which are, are, are very well um, you know, placed to know, that what they're talking about is absolute rubbish. Well, in the short, the, the, the short rule of thumb, Craig, that I can offer viewers if they're questioning about this, is if you don't know anything about Ukraine from 2014 to 2022, you don't know anything about this war. So if you're just taking the media from this year and, and thinking, taking that at face value, and you don't know what's happened from 2014 to now, then you don't know anything and go look up what happened, what's happened, yeah. right? And, and if you want to look it up, you can spend some time trawling through our Facebook, our YouTube channel here because we covered plenty of it for those years, yeah. right? Which, um, which Robbie, the, the reason I'm raising this is that what we're talking about could be deemed by authorities to become infoterrorism. Yeah. Well, Even though there's nothing in it, the fact is you're, you're, you're taking on the establishment just like Assange did, who are completely innocent, you know, well, so back to us, back to Assange, because you just referenced how he's treated in the trial and treated like a terrorist. Um, I want to play the clip. Jo John Shipton, his dad, comment, described this in detail. Now, the, little, the clip we're about to play is a, is a small part of this larger answer that John Shipton gave. And he's such a dignified person. He's like a philosopher. Mm. He, he, he expressed himself like a philosopher. But he's, he would prefer to be doing a million other things, clearly. But his life is now dedicated to fighting for his son. But he's describing just the court conditions um, that Julian Assange is subjected to. And sitting there listening to this first-hand description was incredibly moving. And I'm thinking if every Australian saw this, they would be motivated to, to address this above all. So just, just watch this little clip from John Shipton. Julian was in a glass box at the back that had slots about that wide and a raised floor. The box is about this deep. They made applications that Julian sit with his barristers. Julian, as a publisher, the glass box is made principally to house terrorists, groups of terrorists. He's in this glass box, slots this wide, in order to speak to his barrister, all the lawyers, solicitors, barristers. He had to get on his knees, and the barrister on the other side had to stand on their tippy toes and he whispered through their ears. Meanwhile, the prosecutor and the United States solicitors instructing sat together and whispered in each other's ears, whereas Julian's communications were audible to the court. So, Craig, that's what you were talking about. Literally treated, he's a publisher, literally treated like a terrorist. And that's right, and the description by John, as you say, was very, very moving. And it was incredible. You know, but the idea is that they're using Assange as, don't you attack the powers that be, don't you attack yeah. and, and cover stuff that was, where it makes us But they're making an example of him. It's malicious. Making, yeah. it's, it's, he's no threat John's to anybody. Yeah. It is absolutely malicious. They want to destroy him. They want to set an example of him to everybody else. Those are the good guys in the world. Right. So anyway, we, we, we better move on from that subject. But 
Stay on the Assange case, people. We've got to get this guy out. Um, all right. First subject, bankers terrified of competition with post offices. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to hype that up a bit, but it's true. Get whacked with stamp, Robbie. They're <laughs> pathetic. All right. So we're going to talk about it. We've, we've covered this a little bit in the last few weeks, but this, is, this, is, this deserves more detail. So the Regional Banking Task Force, um, which, which um, a year ago, a bit less than a year ago, uh, took submissions until the 18th of December, 2021. Which we mobilised heavily. We mobilised people. We said, make submissions to that and tell them we need a post office bank. Guess what, Craig? It worked. 416 submissions they got by the deadline. I went through them. Nine out of ten are calling for a postal bank, right? When they had their one meeting in Mildura, the people wanted to know about a postal bank. They produce a 22-page report from their um, task force inquiry one paragraph, one paragraph on a postal bank. Now, I pointed out in uh, this, uh, we're going to go through the article that I um, wrote about this, but I pointed out that what, this, what's explained, what explains what I'm about to go through is the makeup of the, of the, of the um, task force. So, first of all, the task force was set up was something the Nationals initiated. Senator Perrin Davy co-chaired it. But they were motivated to do it because of the Australia Post inquiry that we got going around Christine Holgate because that inquiry brought a lot of attention onto the question of regional banking services because that's what Christine Holgate saved by saving Australia Post and making the banks pay more for Bank at Post. She saved those services. The Australia Post was going to shut them down. 1,500 communities in Australia would have had zero banking services. She saved those services. So we draw, draw, um, drew a lot of attention to that and the Nationals decided, well, they better get acting on this. They'd done nothing in government for nine years about the spate of rural regional bank closures, so they better get going. So they announced this task force. Because they're the junior partner in government, the Liberals straight away took it over because... Unfortunately, well, whatever. They don't trust the nationals when it comes to the banks because the nationals can go rogue sometimes. So they were, um, Perrin and Davey was given a co-chair, none other than Michael Sucker. Now, we knew Michael well because he was the minister that tried to ban cash in 2019. If you were going to spend... He would try to bring in a law that if you spent your money, you could go to jail mm. if it was over $10,000. Mm. And, of course, that we joined with... A bunch of other people like John Adams and Martin North and, and um, got a lot of groups involved. We beat that cash ban. But why, why would Sucker push that cash ban? It was for the banks. It's the banks that want to get rid of cash, right? And this is relevant to this issue because that's what happens when, you, when they close down branches and they rip out ATMs. They're trying to get people to move to digital. So those two are the chairs. The, on the task force was a representative of the Council of Small Business Organisations of Australia, the Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry, the Australian Local Government Association, Australia Post. Those four entities were on the task force. But then listen, listen to who else was on the task force, Craig. Each of the big four banks, ComBank, NAB, ANZ, Westpac, Bank of Queensland, Bendigo Bank, the Australian Banking Association, they've already got all the banks on there. So on top of that, the Australian Banking Association and the Customer-Owned Banking Association. Do you think it's a bit stacked, Robbie? Totally stacked by the banks. And that's why, despite having 9 out of 10 submissions calling for a postal bank, they only spent a paragraph on it. So we're going to go through that paragraph, people, because it speaks for itself. We're going to respond to everything they said. I'll read the paragraph first. 
A number of submissions to the task force suggested making Australia post a bank. However, it is important to recognise that this would significantly duplicate the services already offered through Bank at Post. Such a service may also lead to other banks not renewing their Bank at Post arrangements with Australia Post, reducing consumer choice in rural areas. There are likely to be other issues around making Australia Post a bank. It would raise significant competitive neutrality concerns, brackets as the new bank would be government-backed, and would require significant legislative change and capital investment. There are also likely to be strong tensions between operating in a commercially viable way and meeting social obligations. Importantly, this additional function could divert focus away from Australia Post's core function to deliver letters and parcels. That's that's the paragraph. And most people are reading that obviously. Oh, gee, that's a they're serious argument. <laughs> they're serious arguments. Well, I read it. I'm thinking, well, if they're, if, if they're their best arguments, we've got this one. <laughs> it's not going to come down to the arguments. It's going to come down to how much power the banks have. But let's go through the arguments. Okay. The first one, a postal bank would significantly duplicate services already offered through Bank at Post. No, no, no. Why? A postal bank that we're proposing, Craig, is a new government bank. What's offered through Bank at Post at the moment is just a agency service for the existing banks. Right, they there is no competition to the existing banks. In fact, the banks use it as an excuse sometimes to shut down in an area. They say to their customers, "Oh, you can keep banking um, for us with us through the bank at post." They do that in the cities too, right? Exactly. I mean, Cronulla has only got one bank left. Yeah, the one of the councillors of Cronulla jumped all over us when she heard about our proposal. Oh. Cronulla in the Sutherland Shire, ScoMo's electorate, one bank in the suburb. You can go right. back and post, though. That's what, that's, what they, that's what they tell them, right? So we're talking about an entirely new entity. It is an alternative. There's no duplication here. You're, it is you being able to say, I want to bank with a, I want to move my money to that bank, right? Um, it, will give them a re, it will give customers a real alternative uh, to, to um, the private bank. And these are the private banks that just, they, they, they expect to be able to shut down their branches and keep these customers by um, through Bank at Post. All right, the second argument. A postal bank, quote, may also lead to other banks not renewing their Bank at Post arrangements with Australia Post, reducing consumer choice in rural areas. Yeah. Now, first of all, Craig, you've got to put this answer in the context of the whole report. This whole report justified why the banks are shutting down branches. They don't care if they're the ones reducing consumer choice in rural areas. Just don't let Australia Post become a bank itself and give them an alternative. But also, ANZ has already shown it's got no interest in Bank at Post. It refused to do the deal that Christine Holgate wanted it to do. So you can't bank, if you, if you have an ANZ bank in your town and they shut down, you don't have an alternative. When Christine Holgate was forced out, the first thing the banks did is screw down the amount of money they paid for Bank at Post because they're not committed to it. They could walk away from it any time. They don't have any long-term commitment to Australia, to Australia Post and Bank at Post, right? This is why there must be an alternative. The ANZ Bank robbing Kingaroy. When I was up in Kingaroy back 30 years ago, yeah, we used to bank with the ANZ. They've shut their branch down in Kingaroy, which is a major regional centre. Exactly. And it's we heard from you know, on-the-ground reports 
that it takes up to three weeks to get appointments with the other banks if you're talking about wanting to talk to a banker. Right? This is what's happening. The lack of services on the ground. Yeah, because sometimes you do want to go into a bank and talk to of someone course. about something because you can't just put money into an ATM. But to do that, three weeks. And that's because there's, you know, these banking services are literally disappearing. It's shocking. And these are banking services. They're not just depositing money. Go to, if you don't know King Roy, go there or look it up on a map. It's a large centre. If, if large centres like this can't sustain... And it's not they can't sustain banks. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, anyway, so, so, so these banks aren't committed to bank at post anyway. That's why you want to have an alternative. If the alternative existed, if banks had to... If banks knew, hey, there's a new player in town, it's a dedicated postal bank, so that if I pull out, I can't assume people are going to keep banking with me through bank at post. They might be so upset at me pulling out of the town, they will move their accounts to this other bank that has been solely set up to make sure bank branches stay open all around Australia, right? This through the post office. And there'll the idea stamp, that they would there'll be a stampede into an Australia Post bank, and they know it. Oh, exactly. They and of course that's what happened in, in New Zealand, New Zealand, Kiwi yeah. Bank. Yeah. Kiwi Bank started the first thing the private banks did was announce a moratorium on bank branch closures. Because the last thing that they were they already they already they lost a stack of customers to Kiwi Bank, they tried to um, stem that by keeping their banks their branches open, right? So these are all false arguments. Third, the postal bank would quote raise significant competitive neutrality concerns. Brackets as the new bank would be government backed, and this is the big one, Craig. As we said in this article, there's the rub, as Hamlet says in Shakespeare. The private banks do not want to have to compete with a public bank. They regard such competition as unfair on them. Poor things. Go look at their profits. Go look at their behaviour. Go look at their record. Go look at their fees. Go look at everything that they do. And, and, and you tell me if you feel sorry for these poor things who regard competition with a public bank as unfair competition. That is the reason to have a public bank. And by the way, we had, a, in terms of the Australian banking system as a whole, once upon a time, competition was the norm. Public, competition with the public bank was the norm. For 84 years, the private banks of Australia had to compete with a public bank called the Commonwealth Bank. And they did fine, thank you very much. Right? But you know what they didn't do? They didn't have license for the whole-scale exploitation of their customers because they knew that they had to compete with a public bank on service. The public bank set the standards for how you treat customers, right? That's what they didn't do. Once that was gone, and they haven't had, in the 25 years since the Commonwealth Bank was privatized, price gouging, you know, fat margins on interest payments, predatory, predatory um, uh, ex exploitation of customers, which led to the practices of the Royal Commission, et cetera. They've had carte blanche to do all of that, right? And shutting down branches. So no wonder they don't want to compete. But Craig, someone, someone else gave me a great um, other argument about this, which is that uh, those, of, those of you who were around in the 80s and before and heard all the arguments about why we had to privatise everything, the argument was the private sector is always much more efficient than the public sector. They can do it better. You know that argument? Yeah, 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 I do. Therefore, what, if that's true, what do the banks have to be afraid about having to compete with a public bank. By their own neoliberal philosophy, they're superior anyway. 
Yeah. They should be able to kick its butt all around Australia, right? Show us private banks. But, but what they want to do instead is, is whinge to the government and say, we shouldn't, no, no, don't make us compete, right? This is, this is, these are fraudulent arguments. And just to wrap this up, um, the, the, the three other arguments, quote, the postal bank would require significant legislative change and capital investment. Well, it would require some, but nowhere near as much as they think. Why? Because it's using the post offices, the biggest branch network in Australia. Four and a half thousand branches are already there, right? This massive expense is already taken care of. Um, uh, five, there's, there's likely to be, quote, strong tensions between operating commercially and social obligations. No, that's the way the neoliberals think, right? Oh, don't, don't make us have a social conscience here. We have to be just dedicated to making maximum money at all costs. What you know with the history of public banking, Craig, is the service it provides, provides is the public good, right? And that's, this is true all around the world. Um, and last, six, it would divert focus away from Australia Post's core function to deliver letters and parcels. And this is the most ridiculous argument of all. It's the postal bank that's going to save Australia Post core function. Because the reason Christine Holgate decided to support a postal bank, she went around the world and she saw that the post offices that were faring the best in terms of their core function were the ones that had combined postal services with banking services so that the extra revenue from the banking services would support the provision of the postal services and the, and the infrastructure of the Postal Service would support the provision of the banking service. Mm -hmm. It's true in France, it's true in Switzerland, it's true in India, it's true in Japan, it's true in China. It will be true in Australia as well. This is how you save Australia Post. This is how you can get Australia Post back up to much more, um, you know, the investment it needs to deliver letters properly, etc. right? This is the long-term solution for postal services. So what you've got here is a paragraph written by bankers for bankers, and it's a pile of rubbish. All I would say, my, my last comment, Craig, before getting your comment, is the fact that they only did spend a paragraph on it when this is what dominated the submissions and dominated the meetings, etc., tells you um, or gives you an insight into, into their minds. They're actually quite worried about this. Oh, yeah, right. Look, as you're talking, Robbie, I, I, I was just reflecting on my experience with another big... Australian company called Telstra, <laughs> right? Because, I mean, we dumped them because yeah. we got so sick of having to ring up and getting someone in the Philippines. This is a huge industry, you know, yeah. outsourcing to the Philippines now and other places like India and so forth. But this whole this whole corporate company set up to try and get people to go back to the Philippines because what happened was during the pandemic and before, you could not get any results or any service from Telstra whatsoever because they'd outsourced everything for a profit motive. Now, they must have lost enormous number of customers. We were one of them yeah. because we said, oh, stuff this. What's happened now is they've had to come back to the actual service model where they're servicing the community. They've shut down their call centres in the Philippines now and they brought everyone back. You can talk to an Australian here in Australia, right? Might be working from home from time to time, yeah. but it doesn't matter. You actually get to talk to an Aussie about an Australian service. And I find that there's, from my experience in running this, this operation here, those companies that have put a premium on service, Australian service, yep. have gone ahead in leaps and bounds. Like, yep. And I won't say who they are, because we don't necessarily need to I want to give one. I want to give one a plug. Who's that? Rex Airlines. Ah, oh, yes. 
<laughs> if you get a chance to fly Rex Airlines, do it. That's all they have to compete on is service. Yeah, that's their only advantage, but they do it well. Yeah, and I think, <laughs> and I we're getting no money for this. I just happened. Someone gave me a tip. I've done it, and look, it's kicking but, Qantas's butt. But wherever, and I, this is from you know thirty years of being here in Melbourne, thirty years of running this operation. We're not small. Wherever customers give, wherever companies give good service, right? Yeah. That you, 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 you don't want to leave them for a start because you know you're getting good service. It might cost a little bit more, but not usually much. Mm. But the fact is that you can run your operation hassle-free. When you're dealing with these big corporates and you're dealing with the banks, they're not interested in that service level. They're only interested in profits. And what happens is eventually the crunch time will come. That's coming with the yeah. banks now. The Australia Post is going to get up. It's going to be the solution, the Australia Post Bank. Because this fills a massive void in the Australian banking situation and people are so tired of dealing with... the. It, it, it is a predatory system. Yeah, It's That's a neoliberal become. predatory system that says private profit comes first, the public good comes second. And you have to... What you, when you were referring to the Commonwealth Bank, it was always established for the public good and not private profit. And unfortunately, back in the 90s and the 80s, I don't think people fully understood what it meant to lose that public institution from the point of view of how it actually was serving them. And we did the statistics a few years ago, but before it was privatised, the profits of the big, the Commonwealth and the other three big banks were always large, but they were moderate. As soon as it was privatised, the profits of all of them jumped into the billions. And then 1 billion, 2 billion, 4 billion, 8 billion, Right, they're now closing in on ten billion dollars, and for the Commonwealth Bank itself, in the twenty years it was privatised for seven, it was sold for seven billion dollars. In the twenty years after its sale, its combined profit was a hundred billion dollars. Now, if it had stayed public, it would not have earned a hundred billion dollars because that hundred billion dollars is the amount of money it's extracting from the community through gouging people. Yeah. it wouldn't have been doing that, and it would been it would have been forcing. You know, the, the banks would have been investing in the, in the branches, investing in the jobs, investing in the service in order to, they were, still, they were still profitable, but in order to serve the community, which is what they're supposed to do, right? And we are going to bring this system back because otherwise it's completely dysfunctional. And that takes us um, to the next part. Just, just go through this briefly. There's another section here on, 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 the, on the banking system we want to update people on. Um, Last week we talked about the Adams report, Craig, about ASIC, the regulator who is weak and ineffective and the banks love it. And in fact, I checked this out. I, know, I, I knew the banks loved ASIC. There was a massive inquiry into ASIC in 2014 and it had hundreds and hundreds of submissions. And since I've been involved in, in parliamentary inquiries on, on financial matters, the Australian Banking Association makes a submission to every one, single one of these things, right? They, they're, they're the big voice in, this, in, the, um, in the area. Um, the submission that they made to ASIC, they made about this ASIC inquiry in 2014 into an inquiry called the performance of ASIC said exactly nothing because they didn't make a submission. And in fact, that year, in that inquiry, only the ANZ made a submission and it said, we're not commenting on ASIC's performance. Their submission was to defend themselves from the attacks that they were receiving. The banks all went silent on ASIC when there was an inquiry into ASIC's performance. You know why? Because they love ASIC's performance. It's weak and ineffective because that benefits them. It just leaves the rest of us um, hung out to dry when we're victims of financial crime. So anyway, we talked about the Adams report. John Adams, the economist who I interviewed on Citizens Insight the previous week, 
Um, he's done this report that, that shows 0.74% of ASIC complaints lead to investigations. Um, Denise Braley, who we've worked with on the Sterling Inquiry and bank um, uh, mortgage fraud and all those things, we've, we've done a lot of work with Denise over the years, right? And, and our Senate candidate for Western Australia. Our Senate candidate for Western Australia in this last election. Denise... Back in 2007, to show you that this is a systemic problem, back in 2007, Denise Braley gave an interview on 2UE Radio in Sydney. And I just want to read you what she said in that interview because she essentially raised the same thing that John has raised 15 years later. Um, the interviewer, Glenn, said, Denise has been keeping a close eye on what has been going on. ASIC claimed they have a pretty good success rate when it comes to prosecuting people who do the wrong thing. What do you say about that, Denise? Denise said, just sticking to the facts here, Glenn, all we have to go on are the ASIC annual reports tabled in federal parliament. ASIC claimed 95% of cases investigated were successful, giving you the impression that ASIC has a fairly solid report card. However, the latest figures are 12,500 complaints against financial services and products per year, which is a blowout from 6,000 complaints recorded six years ago. The 95% they are referring to are the actual 18 cases taken to court whereby 17 persons were jailed, we're talking about a situation whereby only a small number of prosecutions um, take place involving criminal charges. This was grand theft of millions of dollars of retirement monies. You currently have 30 people per annum being charged, of which 18 attend court and 17 are jailed, to form the 95% ASIC success rate in terms of um, prosecutions. If ASIC takes criminal action, that represents only 0.2% of the complaints. 0.2% was the number she identified of complaints lead to prosecution. 15 years later, John Adams does a report that says, hang on, forget the prosecutions, only 0.74% are even investigated, right? I mean, this is... And, and the interviewer said to Denise, so using a classic Australian line, that's bugger all. Well, no, exactly. Um uh, anyway, so this week, quick update, the House Economics Committee had a hearing and um, ASIC appeared before the hearing. And so John Adams' um, report was raised by the new Labor member for Hasluck, um, Tanya Lawrence. We'll just play the clip and the response to her raising it from Warren Day, the man who was in charge of day-to-day -day operations at ASIC. Thank you, and I appreciate the detailed response because I, I, I know that you're receiving a lot of public criticism um, in the self-named John Adams Review is one, and, um, and not so long ago with the Grey Wolf where you, Stuart Roberts came out and said, in fact, he felt that this should have, matter should have been investigated. So I do appreciate the detailed response and appreciate the 10,000 claims that you opened with. It's not an easy task. Also, I think, so it seems your question was the idea of a review do we go back and reconsider? I don't think your question's asking, are you, do we reconsider our position? There are times when we do. Um, but it's also about what are the lessons learned, if you like, from mm -hmm. our handling of it and will we go back? And that does happen from time to time, certainly on some of the more high-profile things. So I think you can safely say that in relation to Sterling, there's things about, you know, are there things that would have been identified early that we could look at and things like that? I could name a number of other matters over the last 10, 15 years that... Um, I've been involved in this type of space where that's happened as well. What that does mean that we'll also take into account the sort of piece of information we get from the public, and they're not all um, 
tip-offs of the highest order, a lot of the times they're just people who just want help mm. because they don't know who to speak to and they don't know how to ha- what, 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 what should they do. They just need help. So a perfect example happens in financial advice all the time. People will say, I think I've got really bad advice. What do I do? And generally in those matters, and that makes up a, a, a big volume of what comes to us, we send them to the Australian Financial Complaints Authority, the Ombudsman Scheme, because that's where it should go. So this is why these analyses that, quite frankly, are very simplistic mm. about the reports we get are really, you know, slightly misdirected, if not misconceived, because there's a whole lot of things going on in that um, the sets of contacts we get from the general public. All right. Now, what you, one of the things you heard, so there's a few, I just want to point out a few things there. Um, one is Warren Day mentioned Sterling, right, because that's on everyone's mind. This was a, this was a, 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 a um, glaring case of ASIC uh, not doing its job properly, right? The fact he mentioned it shows you it's, it's in their conscience, which is good. Um, they're, they're, they're trying to avoid all responsibility for it. We have to hold them responsible. The other thing was, I had to point this out, he, he uses, like he dismissed John's report as simplistic, right? Oh yeah, really? Will you explain why it's simplistic, Warren Day? Um, that's why there's got to be an inquiry to get these people to really explain themselves. But then he had this, he tried to deflect by saying, oh look, in some of these cases, these are people that we refer to AFCA, the Australian Financial Complaints Authority, because that's more relevant. Well, we did a report on AFCA earlier this year, Craig. Melissa Harrison wrote it for the Australian Alert Service. It was an excellent article she wrote. It's on our website. You can look it up. Um, the, she showed that if you, get a, if you get a complaint at AFCA, it's just as bad as getting a complaint at ASIC, right? So AFCA has this procedure whereby, um, well, the 2020-2021 annual review reports that AFCA resolved 73,000 complaints last year. How they do it? Well, half of them they dismiss straight away. So, that, so straight away they just say, these half we're not interested in. Bang, gone, right? Um, of, the ones they, of the ones they don't uh, dismiss, then you've got to go through this, through this process of, of um, hoops. Only a small percent of those. So of the ones that don't get summarily dismissed, this is what Melissa wrote. If a dispute is not resolved in Africa's first stage, it process, progresses to case management, which includes informal mediation processes such as negotiation and conciliation. If the complaint remains unresolved, it progresses to Africa's final decision stage. Last year, only 8% of all complaints got to this far. So only 8% got to this final decision stage. If of that... <laughs> um, 78% of the resolutions were in the banks or the financial company's favour. Nearly 80% were in the bank's favour anyway, of that 8% that got through to the final stage. So here's Warren Day saying, oh, yeah, look, you know, these complaints, some of them we have to send to Africa. Well, it's the same problem over there. There is no institution in Australia that represents, that's there for financial victims. Robert, you said something very interesting in our meeting this morning about the funding that the political parties get if over the last nine years. Do you want to say something about that? Because the, the, my point well, is Well, this explains that, it, doesn't it? This is the point. Is so here both, are the figures and then you can comment. The, both the major parties are, in, well, they're owned by the banks. So uh, these were researched through the Australian Electoral Commission returns where all donations have to be disclosed. The Liberal Party 
in the last nine. Well, the reason it's the last nine years is that's the liberal. That's when there was a liberal government, Labor opposition. The Liberal Party received fourteen million dollars from the banks in those nine years. Fourteen million. The Labor Party received nine and a half million dollars from the banks, and the and the organisation that did this made the point that wasn't charity. The banks expect something in return for that money. Well, Robbie, I do the ASIC, I do the uh, AEC returns for our party, and I can tell you, you only you only have to disclose donations over a certain threshold. Yeah, fourteen thousand two hundred dollars this particular last year. So, you know, there's many, many, many more millions of dollars that would be coming from political sources that aren't disclosed. Yeah, right. And that's a very interesting uh, way that the money gets filtered into the system. No, for sure. And that's and that's just the banks, by the way. The the, the um. You got insurance companies. You got the insurance companies. The consulting hold. firms give a lot of money now, right? Um, super funds, that sort of thing. Anyway, um, all right. So this is this is a problem. We look out for a media. There's a media release on our website about the need for an ASIC inquiry. You can you can act on that and start contacting the members of parliament that we that we identify there. Um, we're going to target one of the next sittings of parliament, either the very next one or the one after that to really push hard for an inquiry, in which case we're going to ask people to make phone calls and send emails in a, in a really concentrated way. So just, just um, be prepared for that because this is, we've got to, um, we've really got to keep the heat on this organisation that by being deliberately weak allows Australians to be preyed on all around the country, right? Okay, um, let's see if we can fit the, the rest of this uh, in, in the time we've got left, Craig. <laughs> Bear in mind, the last time I did a show, it went over two hours. We're not going to do that today, I promise. No. <laughs> All right, next sec the second segment. D-Day for City of London speculators on the edge. And um, what's more interesting about this is the contrast we're going to do. But let's just go through the details about D-Day. 14th of October today, we're, this is the 14th of October for us. So tonight, London time, which means when we put up this show on Saturday night. Um, so for, for those who are watching this show, you will, this will have already happened or the beginnings of it might have already happened. Three days ago, the Bank of England Governor, Andrew Bailey, gave pension funds in the UK three days to get their house in order because he said, we're going to stop buying, we're going to su stop supporting the bond market because the bond, they've been supporting the bond market to try and help the pension funds out. And I'll explain why. Um, the question is, what will happen when um, the Bank of England stops doing that? Right when they when they withdraw their support, is that going to be a big deal? It may be. On the surface, it's the opposite. On the surface, it's the it's the governor of the Bank of England saying, um, "You don't, you know, everything's fine now. You don't need our support." Right. But in saying that, in thinking that, he's making certain assumptions about the financial system, and those assumptions are capable of being badly wrong. Right, because the reason we have financial crises in history is when otherwise well-educated, smart people who know the financial system make a massive miscalculation and everything blows up. And the example I want to cite is Lehman Brothers in, in 2008. Because one of the th things that happened with Lehman Brothers is the American government had bailed out Bear Stearns, had bailed out Fannie Mae, had bailed out Freddie Mac, and then Lehman Brothers hits the skids in September. And they had a big discussion at the New York Fed and all this kind of stuff. But ultimately, there was this political embarrassment of the banks in the free market of America, where everyone's supposed to lift themselves up by their own bootstraps, the banks being bailed out. 
right? And the pressure was on, we can't keep bailing these banks out. And they decided to let Lehman Brothers go. And within half a millisecond, they would have regretted it because it literally blew up the world financial system, right? They had not taken into account that Lehman Brothers was itself the trigger for a much bigger um, pile of kindling called derivatives, mm. right? And that's what's interesting about this Bank of England story So, and, and the British Pension Fund story. Here's, what's, here's the elements of this. So first of all, you've had the 2022 phenomenon of inflation, right? Brought about by years and years of quantitative easy money printing and then the supply chain crises and then the, um, the, the energy crisis on the back of the Ukraine conflict. Um, what did the central banks do? Raise interest rates dramatically. And this is, this is having a, but that's their formula. We've got to raise interest rates. Um, Liz Truss gets elected as British Prime Minister and she's a, cra- she's a crazy Thatcherite who, who goes by some neoliberal handbook. And she decides that what she's going to do to, uh, is bring back tr- trickle economics on steroids. And so she announces massive tax cuts. But by announcing massive tax cuts, by definition, she was doing two things. She was, a fuel- she, she was going to be fueling the inflation that the central bank's trying to control. But also, it would require the British government to go into more debt. Right, that's what the tax cuts would do because if they've got to still got to spend the money, if so, if you're cutting taxes, you've got to borrow more debt. So the bond market tanked, and the reason the bond market tanked is because you've got all these British government bonds, Craig, that are at 0.1% interest, but under the rising interest rates, the British government's now forced to issue bonds of 2%, 5% interest, right. And the bond market wants those, not the 0.1% interest ones, right? So the bond market um, starts tanking. This is where the pension funds come in because Britain has a massive um, block of pension funds, 1.4 trillion pounds of pension funds. Their pension system is defined benefit, which Australia used to have before Keating brought in superannuation. And defined benefit, what we have now is called defined contribution here. Everyone knows what you pay in. You don't know what you get out. That's mm. it. You're at the mercy of the market. In the UK, your, what you get out is guaranteed to you, right? You're, you're told you get a 5% return. These pension funds have to come up with that guaranteed return. Now, what happens in normal times is if you've promised your customers 5% return, you just take their money, invest in something that earns 5% fixed interest, like a government bond. But you haven't been able to find government bonds of 5% in fixed interest for years and years and years. They've been 0.1% fixed interest, right? So <laughs> the, um, this has been a problem. And what they did is they, they turned to a form of derivative called liability-driven investments, where to make up the difference, they, they, they use all sorts of strategies, including leverage and swaps and the thing with this, they go to the investment banks and buy these, these swaps, these derivatives from the investment banks, right? And on paper, it's a guarantee. The investment bank is saying, this, the mechanism of this derivative will deliver the guaranteed return you want. And it's therefore also insurance against fluctuations in the bond market. Now, once the bond market started tanking, though, on the back of the, the, uh, the list trust spooking them, um, Nobody expected it to tank this badly. Nobody expected the British pound to take this badly. Just money started fleeing the United Kingdom. So suddenly, another hallmark of the derivatives came in. When you buy derivatives like this, the derivatives are structured such that if the risk changes, you have to put up more collateral. 
So this is the effect of a margin call by investment banks on the pension funds. It's, the, it's in the contract of the derivative. They've got to put up more collateral. Where are they going to get them from? Most of the things pension funds are supposed to invest in have to be fairly safe. Flogging off their bonds. Flogging off everything, right? This was a fire sale in the UK, absolutely flogging it off. Mm. And that's why the markets over there have been absolute haywire, the pound, everything you saw. Now, it has stabilised in recent um, couple of weeks. Why? Because the Bank of England intervened in the bond market. And it's very, very unusual for central banks to directly buy government bonds. But they, they had to intervene in the bond market and they were able to stabilise it, right? And so now... Um, uh, Andrew Bailey, the governor, is saying, "Oh, okay, it's all good now. We should be able to go. But we should be able to pull out our intervention. We should be able to stop doing this." Well, maybe it's true, but maybe it's not, because when there's all this leverage and all these derivatives on these that these pension funds are exposed to, and there's so much money, you know, Lehman Brothers was a twenty-five billion dollar collapse, Craig, mm. that triggered, you know, two hundred billion dollars in AIG, and that triggered trillions of dollars in derivatives worldwide. You're talking about pension funds that have 1.4 trillion pounds at stake, right? Um, and the investment, the investment banks that are attached to that. So this is this is nerve wracking. We're raising it today. You, you, by the time you're watching this, you may know some of the outcome, but you also may not know the knock-on effects that have actually happened, right? And you know, even looking at this subject reminded me of, as I said yesterday, 2000. And, you know, in the lead up to 2008 and then 2008, when we're all, we're all looking up de definitions like what are collateralised debt obligations, etc. right? We're back, in that, we're back in that ballpark. But Craig, that brings us to the contrast because the City of London used to be the... Well, it still is the biggest financial centre in the world. It used to be the banker of the world. It's no longer the banker of the world. We are running out of time, but I want to go through these figures because they're worth going through. The real banker of the world now is China. China is the biggest lender in the world. And the majority of the world want to bank with China. Because all, all the city of London now is just speculation. Like I've just, I've just described to you a casino going chaotic, right? What happens when you bank with China? Well, look at its enemies first. So we, there's an article in this week's alert service by um, uh, Elisa Barwick, right? Rewriting the rules of international finance, step one. So there's a lot of attacks coming on China in the, the Week magazine on the 21st of September. Um, commented, lending is at the forefront of the emerging game of power politics between the West and China that looks set to define the 21st century. London's Financial Times said on the 11th of September, China has doled out tens of billions of dollars in secretive emergency loans to countries at risk of financial crises in recent years, turning Beijing into a formidable competitor of the Western-led IMF. And the... And Fortune magazine reported 13 September that, quote, China has shelled out tens of billions in opaque emergency loans for at-risk nations, indicating a shift to providing short-term emergency lending rather than long-term infrastructure loans. But, that, but, but let's talk about the infrastructure loans, though, because that's its bread and butter. It just means that countries are turning to China for everything now. So, so there's an organisation called Aid Data, which is a research lab at the William & Mary's um, Global Research Institute in the, in the US. Uh, it's just published, in May it published, Banking on Beijing, the Aims and Impacts of China's Overseas Development Program. Uh, and these are the highlights from the article. It said, in the 20th century, China mainly provided aid, but it now lends to bankroll big ticket infrastructure projects. This creates new opportunities for developing countries to achieve rapid socio-economic gains. And you're talking about how rapid? You're talking about 1% 
increases in GDP per project within a two to five years. That's right. This is why countries like um, Ethiopia have the highest growth rates in the world at the moment, right? Which is the nature of infrastructure, cat acting as a catalyst for the economy. Exactly. Without bridges, without roads, without th those sorts of infrastructure, you can't move goods around. That's how you make the economy more efficient. That's exactly right, yeah. But cheaper power cheaper. supplies. Yep. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, uh, they, they complain. They, this, actual, this report actually does... It rubbishes the notion that Beijing is a villain, which is very, which is very interesting that it does that. Even though it complains about some of its methods, such as Beijing just deals with the governments of the countries, i.e. the politicians in charge of those countries, it doesn't go through the bureaucrats and the bankers in those countries. Right? Um, in the first two decades of this century, quote, Beijing became the world's largest official creditor with annual lending volumes that exceed those of the World Bank, the IMF, and all Paris Club creditors combined. Since it launched the Belt and Road Initiative, Beijing has outspent Washington on a more than two-to-one basis, Brussels on a more than four-to-one basis, and London on a more than eight-to-one basis. It has accomplished this extraordinary feat by building a war chest of foreign exchange reserves worth more than $3 trillion and positioning itself as the developing world's go-to banker for big-ticket infrastructure items. Um, one of the things that, that, the, that the China doesn't do, like the IMF, and the reason these banks, these countries, don't just go to it for the loans, but now they go into it for emergency loans, China doesn't impose conditions on those loans. You know, I've said this before, Robbie, on the program. You know, I remember back in the 70s and the 80s, we used to talk about bankers' arithmetic, yeah. right? which was, which is, which is a, the way the IMF would keep many, many countries under their control. Countries that were in need of capital yep. go to the IMF and the IMF says, yes, we will give you this capital, but you have to devalue your dollar and you can only spend this capital in these certain approved areas. Well, the, right? the, the conditions include this, this, the weak magazine admitted IMF conditions include free, neoliberal free market shock therapy such as open markets, scrapping government subsidies, deregulating key sectors, privatisation and debt management. Yeah, in other words, all these strings attached, whereas yeah. China says, no, we'll help you out. Here is the money to build the infrastructure. We will help you to do that. So there's none of those what they call IMF conditionalities. And these are a big deal during the 70s and 80s because they caused enormous misery uh, in, in uh, many well, of the sorry, African even countries. In, even, yeah, in, even, even into, the, into the more recent times. In, in, um, in 98, when Indonesia had to go to the IMF during the global the, uh, Asia crisis, well, the IMF, the first thing it demanded, you've got to lift your subsidy on oil, yeah. right? even though it's, it's, a, it's a country swimming in oil, and it brought down the government. But see, this is, this is again, Robbie, an example, if you, on the microcosm, you could say, of what it means for us to have a Australia Postal Bank. Yes. We're again serving the general welfare, the, the idea of the public goods, servicing the community. What China is doing through on this the policy large, on the large situation right. is servicing entire countries. It's saying you don't have to put up with this corruption and you know, bankers' dictatorship yep. at, a, in, at a national, international level. We are the alternative. And this is what's freaking out the West. And that's because, you know, this is why you've got a, a, this massive drive to eliminate Russia. And we'll say, we've said more about this in the past. You know, John Lander has made comments on his uh, uh, programs to this effect too. The reason we have a war in Ukraine, which is a proxy war for NATO, is to eliminate Russia, to get rid of Russia, to, to eliminate Russia's economic power within the world and also its collaborative power with countries like China because the intention by the West is to have a war with China within 10 years. 
of which Australia will become a proxy. Because the West is not thinking in terms of what is in the interest of Australian citizens. No. They Just think, like the banks don't look at the interests of the Australian citizens when it comes down to banking at the local but, towns. But Craig, isn't that the common denominator? It's the banks that run Australia and it's the banks that run American politics and British politics. It's all run by the banks, right? They have. And, and what's the other contrast with China? Everything that I've just gone through that China's lending for is 100% real. There is no speculation in there. There is no derivatives. They're not lending for derivatives. And they'll only deal with actually elected governments. They won't deal with technocrats and public servants. They will deal with elected governments, which is interesting. So, look, the contrast is extraordinary. And the final point is that literally the majority of the world is wanting to do business with China now, right? The the Anglo-Americans have... And the City of London and Wall Street, which run the Anglo-Americans, that where it's connected to um, by an umbilical cord, have sealed their own fate. The only question is, are they going to spark a world war to bring us all down with them? Or can can we get people of goodwill and common sense in those countries to start realising, well, we better um, fix our countries up, fix our economies up. And the best way to do it is copy what the Chinese did because ultimately the Chinese copied them, their success originally. And Robbie, I found it very interesting that in the last you know, UN General Assembly, there were many, many, many nations calling for a, a solution to the Ukraine issue. Yep. Many nations. But we never hear about that aspect of the UN's work. It's always attacking, you know, attacking Russia oh, or yeah. so forth. Yeah, so the moral of that story is don't believe anything in the mainstream. What's the citizens' report? (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) All right, thanks for tuning in for the citizens' report. Stay tuned for more on the ASIC front because we we will keep the pressure on there and the um, Postal Bank campaign. What's the David McBride interview over the weekend if you haven't? It's really worth watching. He's your fellow Australian. He's doing something incredibly brave. And um, Craig, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Robbie. Happy 30th anniversary Citizens Party head office in Melbourne. And um, thanks to the viewer for tuning in. Tune in next week for more. Authorised by Robert Bowick, Citizens Party Melbourne.